Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. There we go. Now we really go. All right. So, oh, that's That would be a false start, I think, in the Olympics, what we just did. Uh, all right. So welcome to the show. We're going to talk today. Uh, let me just back up. I'm almost kind of embarrassed that this is the reason why we're going to talk about something really important, something we should be talking about anyway. Uh, but it's odd how popular culture drives certain kinds of choices and changes certain kinds of awareness. So it's not as though I've been unaware of AIDS. I've been very involved, at least as involved as uh, as I could be uh, in, on a number of levels in, in this story uh, since the late 1980s. But it, it is something that I think for in a lot of our minds has become kind of inert. You know, I mean, a lot of us sort of maybe we attend a fundraiser here or a fundraiser there or do something else. But I don't think we really kind of grapple with this thing the way that we used to. And so there have been a few things that have kind of reawakened me a little bit, and, and I hope you as well. Um, one of them is um, is the Dallas Buyers Club, which is turning into be something of a hit movie. It is a story of the early days of HIV. Uh, it's a story of one man. It's actually kind of a fictionalized version of one man, one, but one of the people who basically did what a lot of HIV patients had to do, uh, which was become their own medical advocates and, and bypass at that time a medical establishment, a drug establishment that was responding incredibly slowly, at least in terms of, of what was needed. People were dying uh, and there were no drugs. I mean, there were no drugs that worked at all. Um, anyway, watching this movie, I just found myself crying all over again and just, you know, catapulted back to those days and, and uh, all kinds of horrible memories of my own coming back to me. But I was also kind of aware that it was the first time I'd really thought about this in a while. Um, the other time that uh, I might have thought about it was last year when How to Survive a Plague, the Oscar-nominated documentary, which actually focuses pretty much on the same stretch of time, uh, came out as well. Uh, I, on top of that, um, not that it's really quite at the same level, but uh, you know, for the first time maybe in a while, um, a pretty well-known person, Elton John, put out a memoir last year in which he talked um, very frankly about, about how he sees uh, HIV today and, and where the stigma still is and, and, and what he thinks the implications of that are. So, um, you know, the popular culture can drive these things back uh, into our minds. But it made me realize also that we're not really talking about it a lot. Um, and maybe today's a good day to do that. So that's what we're going to do as we go along here. Um, I hope that you will feel free to call in at 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Let me tell you who you'll be talking to. With me in studio, Sean Lang, Director of Public Policy for AIDS Connecticut. Karina Danvers is Director of the Connecticut AIDS Educational Training Center at the Yale School of Medicine AIDS Program, which provides uh, education primarily to doctors and other providers on topics related to HIV-AIDS. Uh, on the phone with us uh, will be Dr. Robert Bruce, uh, an assistant uh, professor of medicine and epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine. Um, I, I should also just mention here, I'll mention it a couple of times, one of the things that I've been involved with for I don't know how many years now um, 
uh, but sometime back, back in the 90s, Peter Shapiro and I started an, an Oscar night fundraiser. Uh, at that time, there, was, there wasn't even the equivalent of the organization that is now AIDS Connecticut, but there were shelters. And so we started out raising money for them, and it, it turned into other things as we went along. So uh, that's going to happen again this year on March 2nd. Uh, it's a really fun fundraiser, um, and we've got a great place to do it this year. They um, are staging it at the Spotlight Theaters in Hartford, which I think will be great. This brand new movie theater, and you'll be able to go in and sit in those comfy seats and watch the telecast, or go out in the kind of dining area and socialize and do all the things that you like to do in your fancy clothes. So, for more information about that and to get tickets, visit ctaidscoalition.org. I'll mention this a couple of times. We'll have it up on our website as well. All right, enough babbling out of me. Um, and well, one tiny bit more babbling, uh, which is let me just sort of tell you kind of where I think we're going to go. Um, I want to just spend a little time, not a huge amount of time, but a little time kind of revisiting those early days uh, in the 1980s and maybe early 1990s, um, not only because it's an important part of history, but I think there are a lot of lessons. I mean, this won't be the last time. It isn't the last time. It hasn't even been the last time that the medical establishment and the pharmaceutical establishment has had to face a new disease they didn't know how to treat and didn't know how to handle. And there were some things that made this one special. Uh, A large proportion of the people who were getting the disease uh, were already stigmatized in other ways. Uh, So that made it it a little bit different too. But I think it's worth sort of going back and and, uh, talking about some of those lessons from that time and what happened during that time. Also, a little bit later in the show, uh, you'll hear uh, Karina's personal story uh, about living with HIV. Uh, And then uh, we also obviously want to talk about where we are now in terms of what the meds are, in terms of prospects. Everybody, of course, wants to know when's the vaccine coming, when's the cure coming. Uh, You read about things like the baby in Mississippi uh, who uh, appeared to have, because of very, very early treatment with a lot of drugs, uh, some kind of reversal of AIDS. But that's an anomaly. There doesn't seem to be a lot of replication of anything like that. So where are we now? What do we need to know about about education? Who's getting HIV now still? It's not as though nobody ever uh, contracts the virus. Uh, It still happens. So we'll talk all about all of that as we go along here today. And we do welcome your questions as we go. 860-275-7266. Before I add uh, Dr. Robert Bruce, uh, those of you who are in studio, Karina Danvers and Sean Lang, uh, not to make it about the movie because we're here to talk about a lot of other stuff, but have either of you seen Dallas Buyers Club? I have not. Oh, I have seen the movie and it brought back, um, I used to belong to the Boston Buyers Club in the uh, early 80s because there was nothing else uh, and uh, I used to pay $100 a month to belong to it, and I used to get all kinds of interesting things in the mail that um, um, supposedly were going to cure me of HIV. Yeah. And it's, I mean, for people who don't understand these buyer's clubs, because, in fact, there were drugs that were not available through conventional channels, and because it was illegal to sell those drugs or provide them in other ways, the, what you did is you paid basically a monthly subscription fee and you joined this club, quote unquote, and then you got the drugs. And supposedly, anyway, it, it would forestall certain kinds of prosecution. Correct. Right? That's exactly what it was. Yes. Um, and, and there is actually there's a moment in the in the documentary How to Survive a Plague where uh, they're just sort of panning the shelves of one of these buyers clubs, and the guys at the desk is, is saying what all these things are. And he goes, "Oh, and by the way, they don't they don't work. Uh, you should put that in too." <laughs> I, I mean, did did at the, when you remember that time, you obviously were in a desperate situation, and you'd probably try pretty much anything that had the remotest chance of helping you. I, I think most of us believe that um, probably nothing was really going to help, but I think we felt like at least we were doing something and that we weren't just sitting waiting to, to die because at the time very much that's what it was. you know. So it really gave you, I guess it empowered you in some sense that I am taking something and our society 
you know, anytime you have something, no matter what it is, it's great to get a prescription for something. And I think it was, it felt more normal to get a prescription or get a medication that will help you. Uh, so it was, um, it was, you know, I had completely forgotten about that part of my HIV history. Uh, until I saw the movie, I, I turned to my husband and I said, oh my God, I used to belong to the Boston Buyer Club. I had completely <laughs> forgotten about that part of my life, you know? Well, you know, Sean, a, a lot of things were happening at that time. It wasn't just one thing. It was um, a frustration uh, about the speed of research, a, a frustration about the speed with which any possibly helpful drug was making its way to market. There was a sense that uh, AZT well, was maybe not exactly the right answer, at least used all by itself. Uh, it was not the right answer. And, and what we did see was this incredible empowerment uh, of a group of patients who, in a way that I, I mean, it may be unparalleled in the history of epidemiology, said, you know what, we are going to take control of this process to a certain degree. T tell us a little bit more about that. I think that's absolutely true. I'm really glad you referenced How to Survive a Plague. And there was a parallel documentary to United in Anger, both of which chronicle the early years of the AIDS epidemic um, around the actions of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Um, you know, this was all happening during the Reagan administration. It took Reagan eight years to even utter the word AIDS, and that was a full year after his good friend Rock Hudson had died. And, um, you know, when I talk to groups of people living with HIV, I say, you know, if it wasn't for ACT UP, you would all be dead now because they really pushed, and I think you're absolutely right, in an unparalleled way um, against the drug companies. Their big push was um, people before profits. They wanted things to be fast-tracked through research and development. And they also, um, and a lot of people forget this as part of ACT UP's history, advocated for universal health care um, as part of their platform. Um, you know, when I uh, got to see the film uh, last year uh, and hear some of the people who were in it, Greg Gonsalves, who's at Yale now, uh, Peter Staley, David French, who was the director. I mean, it was really amazing to hear those stories. And it's also, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, like Karina was saying and you were saying, you get thrown back into the time machine when you see those and remember those early days when, you know, people gathered in living rooms and community centers and church basements to start AIDS projects to, you know, minister to the sick and dying and try to quell the fears of the community with very little information. Um, you know, and then when the uh, combination therapies came out in the mid-90s, it was a complete game changer. And, you know, Karina and I were talking earlier that, you know, we're dealing with things now that we never foresaw 30 years ago. And that's an aging population of people living with HIV. The um, I think another group of people who did a bad job were us. I think the press had a, lot, a hard time wrapping its mind around this problem. And I actually, I was a reporter and columnist at the Hartford Current in the late 1980s. I was at one meeting where we were talking about how we were going to write about this, what kind of coverage we were going to do. And, and somebody talked about condoms, condoms, condoms. And and the, the then one of the two top-ranking editors was in the room, and she said, well, I, I don't think it's really been decided that this newspaper is going to be talking about condoms. You know, Because oddly enough, I mean, it seems insane to say this now, but in the late 1980s, the word condom really – if it had ever appeared in the Hartford Current, that was kind of an anomaly. Basically, it just was not a word that they were comfortable using. And she said, I don't think we've really decided that we're going to be writing about condoms. And a bunch of us looked at her and said, are you out of your mind? I mean, people are dying. This could help, and we wouldn't tell them. I mean, what 
what are newspapers for? What's the press for? But I think it took the, the press because of a of myriad factors. It took the press a long time to really do the kind of writing and reporting that was really essential. And once again, ACT UP and groups like that got just way ahead of us, I think, too. Well, I think the other thing that happened is, you know, Connecticut wasn't one of those epicenters. Um, we looked at kind of as a tier two state. You know, we're not in New York. We're not a Boston, San Francisco, Dallas, Miami. So I think you know, even getting the ball rolling um, in Connecticut took a little bit longer because we weren't an epicenter. You know, but places like the Gay and Lesbian Health Collective, AIDS Project Hartford at the time, AIDS Project New Haven, all sprung up around the same time, around 83, 85. Um, you know, and then we saw AIDS housing programs spring up in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, after those AIDS projects were more established and started to get some funding. Because all of this, we started all of this on a wing and a prayer with nothing. I mean, in the late 80s, we started the Middlesex County AIDS Buddy Network, and, you know, it was folks from the gay community, community health center and center congregational church just said, you know, we need to start some services for people with AIDS in Connecticut. And this was before there was, you know, Ryan White funding and CDC funding. So, you know, it's amazing to see, you know, what happened in those early days and then what's happening now. It's a totally different ballgame. Let me add uh, Dr. Robert Bruce to this uh, conversation. Dr. Robert Bruce, an assistant professor of medicine and epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine. I also want to mention again, you can call in with questions, comments, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may tweet us, too. Our tweetmaster, Greg Hill, is in the house. Our uh, Twitter account is WNPR Colin. Um, Dr. Robert Bruce, um, you know, we're talking about this time, this time in the late 80s. And, and it really was, I mean, you go back and you look at these documentaries and you realize from a medical perspective, it was a mess because you had this disease that it emerged kind of more or less out of nowhere. Uh, there wasn't a, a plan for treating it. Uh, you want in those situations to do responsible medical science, which means a lot of double blind testing, uh, which means a, a lot of things that take a lot of time and caution and care. Meanwhile, you had a whole population of, of smart active people who were in many cases kind of improvising uh, and taking other things and, and maybe participating in some drug studies, but meanwhile trying to treat themselves as well. Um, first of all, I, I don't know if you, you want to add to that picture, but, but as you look back on it um, and look back at it as a time when everyone was desperate to find some kind of treatment for AIDS, what are the things that strike you uh, about that cauldron there in the ni- late 1980s? Well, I think one part of that is the hopelessness. I mean, you know, AIDS became an official epidemic on June 5th in 1981, and there wasn't really anything that anyone could do to prolong someone's life for that first big part of that epidemic, that first decade. I mean, AZT comes out by 1990, but there, there's not uh, any big game changer. As Sean mentioned, the game changers kind of come in the mid-1990s. And so up until that, the late 80s, people are desperate, and they see their friends dying, and that becomes kind of the, the jet fuel for things like ACT UP, where people are going to say, wait a minute, we can't wait. Waiting means death. And so, you know, the medical community is still trying to wrap its head around, well, what is going on? I mean, there's this, you know, the MMWR that officially launches the epidemic is about five gay men on the West Coast who have a rare infectious disease, but it's not clear, well, why, why are they getting this bizarre disease? And so, you know, I look back on the 80s as, the medical community is trying to figure out what's happening. And as they begin to figure it out, they're then trying to say, what on earth do we do? And the first attempt on what on earth do we do is AZT. But during that concurrently, 
the community is saying, help us do something. Why is the FDA take forever to get medications approved? Like there's this ridiculous process and this ridiculous process ends lives. And, you know, as you start going into the kind of 1991, 1994 frame, um, the National Task Force on AIDS drug development was created, and the FDA got a lot of pressure to fast-track medications. And some of that fast-tracking of medications and innovation eventually leads to, and a lot of that huge public pressure that Sean was talking about helped lead to the approval of the first Proteus inhibitor, which comes in the late, you know, after 1995. And that becomes the game changer. And now people can live with HIV and the tragedy of the early epidemic is that many people weren't able to survive until those new medications became available. Do you so think... I remember when my patient's shark cartilage was very popular when I was a resident in Dallas. Um, but um, Yeah, and there's a, a, in, the, in the documentary How to Survive a Plague, there's a moment, I think uh, Peter Staley is on, on, on some talk show, and he's saying, you know, I understand why it takes seven years to bring a new nasal spray uh, to market, but we don't have seven years, and this isn't a nasal right. spray. Um, and are things different now? I mean, if, if, if not necessarily for HIV, but if the medical community confronted a comparable challenge, um, do you think it would unfold differently? Were lessons learned that can be applied to other kinds of medical crises? Absolutely. I think the, a similar kind of piece would be hepatitis C. So hepatitis C is a very large epidemic in the United States. About 2.2 million people are estimated to have hepatitis C. It's a larger global epidemic, about 170 million people worldwide. And new medications have recently become available. Uh, two new medicines were just approved in 2013, which are huge game changers for the treatment of hepatitis C. And so the same kind of expedited approval as possible in the hepatitis C world, there's the same idea that although hepatitis C is slower to cause uh, end of life than HIV is, there's still this push of there aren't, there, there are people waiting for these medications, people with cirrhosis, people who are dying, people who are transplantless, and they can't wait. They can't wait five years for a new hepatitis C medication. They need it now. So the, the entire AIDS epidemic really grew the entire world of virology. What people are doing in hepatitis C is trying to take an HIV model and apply it to a different virus. The same is true in drug approval. The same is true in advocacy. The, the entire HIV paradigm changed pharma. It changed the FDA. It, changed, it really changed the world and how people do really look at the, the role of pharma, the role of advocacy, and the role of academia. I want to take a quick break here. This is a good place to take a break. Uh, Dr. Robert Bruce, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine. Uh, that was him. Uh, we also have in studio Karina Danvers. We're going to talk really specifically about her story and her experiences in the next segment. Also, Sean Lang uh, from AIDS, Connecticut. We'd love to hear from you, too. 860-275-7266. back. We're talking about HIV, uh, its history, uh, its present, its future. Uh, and we'd uh, love to hear from you as well at 860-275-7266. 
860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. Uh, with us today uh, are Dr. Robert Bruce, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine. He's uh, with us by phone. Sean Lang is Director of Public Policy at AIDS Connecticut uh, in here in the studio with me. And also, Karina Danvers, Director of the Connecticut AIDS Educational Training Center at Yale School of Medicine AIDS Program. Um, and Karina, we're going to talk to you uh, not only in connection with the title that I just described, but also as a person who's been living a really long time now with HIV. Uh, I think probably if people uh, close their minds, their eyes, and, I, and perhaps possibly their minds as well. And I say, picture an HIV patient. They don't picture you. Uh, you don't fit most people's stereotype. Uh, tell us who you are and and how it is that you you came to have this. Um, well, I probably got infected in 1984. Uh, I was married to a wonderful man who probably was bisexual. Um, he died in 1989, uh, and that's when that's the only reason why I got diagnosed. I have to say it. I was one of those people who always said, uh, we're all going to know somebody who's HIV positive by 1992. Never put myself in that uh, position. I never looked at myself in the mirror and thought I would be remotely at risk for HIV. He died October 19th, 1989. I was diagnosed that same month, October 10th, 1989. And one of the remarkable things, I remember my doctor giving me the diagnosis, and he says, you cannot get pregnant. It wasn't even a choice. It wasn't a conversation. It was like, you cannot get pregnant. And um, if you look at 2013, and for a while now, I mean, a woman who gets diagnosed now with HIV has the the opportunity to get pregnant and most likely give birth to an HIV-negative child. So... As gigantic as that was uh, and is, um, I would imagine that wasn't uppermost on your mind in, uh, at the time of your diagnosis, right? I mean, did you did was it instantly meaningful to you at the time? I mean, public awareness was was growing at that point. Did you understand? what it meant to, to have the HIV diagnosis? What it meant to me in 89, it meant that um, my first thought is that nobody's going to have sex with me again. Uh, nobody's going to love me. And um, how, who am I going to tell? I mean, I just felt so alone and scared. And uh, thanks to AIDS Project New Haven, that had a hotline. I was able to talk to someone on the phone. I wouldn't come in to talk to them, but I would talk to someone on the phone. And then finally I told my best friend, Sharla, who I kn- for some reason, I, I knew she would have been okay with it. But even that, it took me like a few days to even tell my best friend. And uh, and um, she had a hard time dealing with it because at the time, she even like um, stayed away from me for a while. Not because she was afraid to get infected, but she just didn't want to deal with living with somebody who pretty much was going to be dead in a few years because that's what we thought at the time was going to happen. So. And, and in fact, those protease inhibitors that, that uh, Dr. Bruce was talking about a few minutes ago, they weren't available at the time of your diagnosis. There wasn't really a reliable cocktail to treat you with. Why are you still alive? Good question. <laughs> how, how did you make it through that, that rough period of five or six years where there just really you wasn't You know, I, I, um, faith, um, I don't know, just this reliance, this desire to... I don't know. I think this desire, you know, when I was in, when I got infected and I got the diagnosis and I thought, okay, I'm one of them now. And that's exactly what I said to my head. I'm one of them now. I might as well do something with it. So that's in a way I think has kept me alive to this day. And, and I have to say love and support. I, I've, I've been blessed. I haven't lost any friends. Mm. Uh, If anything, my, my current partner, my husband, he's HIV negative. We've been together for 20 years, so safer sex does work. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, too, people, HIV 
doesn't affect every single person the exact same way. I mean, we have people who are non-progressors and people who are multi-drug resistant. So there's a whole range of what HIV, how HIV impacts individuals. And Doug mentioned the fact that in 1995-96, this new drugs came out, the protease inhibitors. I had zero CD4 cells. Basically, I had no immune system. And I had a 3 million viral load, which in, nowadays we don't even go that high. And I was in the hospital. And these drugs were there. And my doctor, Dr. Friedland at Yale, he put me on this, uh, we used to call them cocktails. He put me on these cocktails. And by Thanksgiving, I was zero CD4 cells in August. By Thanksgiving of that year, I was in Nantucket with my husband, gained 25 pounds. I had 300 CD4 cells. So it really was like what they used to be called the Lazarus effect. Mm. I really mm. went from literally my mother coming to visit me and to say goodbye to living a full life and um, have pretty much lived a full life since. Since we do have Dr. Bruce on the phone, it might be worth asking him. Um, obviously, her story and her story from 1989 to, say, 1995 is different from a lot of other stories. And, and Sean Lang just offered uh, an explanation, too, about just the range of physical responses uh, to the same disease. Is there m more that you'd want to say about that? I would just want to echo that there really is a broad spectrum. There are people that we now call elite controllers who are HIV antibody positive, right? So they're HIV positive when they're tested, but they don't have a detectable virus. They're, they still have HIV, but their body is somehow able to control it. And there's a lot of active research to find out why. There are other people who very quickly from the time that they're infected have a very high viral load, very quickly move from an asymptomatic HIV state to a symptomatic with AIDS and to death. And I think this is one of the reasons that we want everyone to get tested for HIV. Right. You know, I've been tested. Everyone should be tested. And the reason is because if we find out, we can do something about it. But unfortunately, today, we still have lots of men and women who did not get tested. And the first time that we find out is when they're hospitalized. And they're hospitalized with some rare infection because their CD4 count's very low. And when you think about it, the, the longer you give HIV an opportunity to damage your body and damage your immune system, the worse off it is in the long run. Karina didn't have a choice. The meds weren't available. But people have a choice today, and that's why we really want people to get tested. From the time you start medication, you add, on average, 59 years to your life. So I had a conversation with a young 31-year-old African-American man last week, and I basically said to him, because he was very worried that I'm going to die, I have HIV, and I said, well, you know, we're going to start you on medicine, and that means 59 years plus 31, you should plan for your 90th birthday. <laughs> it's going to be diabetes, high blood pressure, other things that may take your life, but it does not have to be HIV. You know, um, just back to that question of, of everybody being tested, which uh, the more that I read about this getting ready for this show became more and more apparent. Uh, I, I certainly I was tested in the 1990s. I mean, how often should anybody be tested? And when I go for my annual physical and there's a, a you know, a basic blood a lab panel done, um, is that one of the things I'm tested for? You should be. Yeah. But as uh, in terms of a routine procedure, Dr. Bruce, is typically a person going to be tested as part of just routine testing for, for you know, yearly maintenance? So that, that really winds up depending upon the healthcare setting and the policies in place there. So um, one of my other responsibilities is I'm the chief of medicine of the Cornell Scott Hill Health Center, and that's a large FQHC, a federally qualified health clinic in New Haven. And so it's a, it's a public clinic. And so one of our policies is, is people consent to treatment in the health center, they consent to HIV testing. 
And that's because we want to test everyone in the health center and we want to test them annually because people engage in risk. And so um, I think a lot of the public clinics may be more geared to this because they're often tied into the public system and work with CDC or HRSA, other federal agencies that are interested in HIV initiatives. It's a lot of the private practices, people that see their own doctor on their health insurance, and it really becomes dependent upon that individual practitioner to do it. Some practitioners are very good at it. I know Karina goes out and encourages more and more physicians to test. It would be, I think, to everyone's advantage if this was something that was almost required in the state. I mean, Connecticut, although it is a small state, does not have an insignificant amount of HIV. I mean, in the last EPI report, Connecticut ranks seventh in the rate of people living with HIV AIDS in the United States. So this is something that we should definitely be looking for in everyone who lives in Connecticut. I think that's a great idea, and and I don't know. Actually, I got tested on the air. Peter Shapiro and I, at Peter's insistence, we got test. We got had our blood drawn on the air for an AIDS test in the mid nineteen nineties, just to encourage people to get this testing. I, that was even before I think we knew uh, as much as we know now, as much as what Doctor Bruce is saying right now about early intervention. The sooner you get there w- with the treatment, uh, the you know the more you put the brakes on this thing. So obviously, testing right now makes a tremendous amount of sense. You know, Karina, I want to go back to your story for a second because so there's. There's, we could spend four hours uh, on your story, I, I think, and only begin to scratch the surface. One of the things that you've had to make decisions about uh, over over decades now, over 20 years, uh, is who to tell and when, right? I mean, uh, I would imagine even going to a doctor about another problem, uh, particularly from 1989 and maybe a decade going forward, you know, would you necessarily even want to tell that doctor that you have HIV? You know, I've learned that... Um it's very scary. Um, for example, if I go outside uh, my clinic to get my uh, blood drawn, I'm always scared that somebody's going to um, treat me poorly if they find out I'm HIV positive. Uh, it's always in the back of my mind whether I should tell or not. As a matter of fact, I just started uh, acupuncture with this uh, new provider. And um, I was filling out the form. This just happened last week. I was just filling out the form, and it said other conditions, and I left it blank. And uh, I left it blank. Then I thought to myself, well, this person really needs to know all about me if she's going to treat me properly. Mm-hmm. And But I was only – I didn't want to write it down, but I did tell her in person. Like I didn't want the front person to know about my HIV status. And I'm a person who is very open, mm-hmm. you know. You're on the radio right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm on the radio right <laughs> exactly. now. And on the other hand, socially, because of the stigma, I mean, not for nothing, I love my husband dearly. And, um, and he's probably listening to me right now. <laughs> But we're not exactly telling the world where he works in the corporate world that his wife is on NPR, which we both listen to all the time, uh, because we're talking about HIV. And I wonder if it would have been different if I was talking about diabetes or breast cancer. And um, so if you were to describe what the stigma is, you know, when we use that word, the stigma uh, of HIV or HIV AIDS, what is it we're saying? What does that unpack that a little bit? Um, I think we're saying fear. Just people are scared of me. Of what I have, mm-hmm. and um, because I think I have an infectious disease, and I think that alone just scares the hell out of people. And and I think also too, when you mentioned HIV specifically, and I was talking to Sean about this, people go straight to, and I don't care what people say, they go straight to anal sex, men having anal sex, and they go straight to that drug addict uh, uh, in the streets using needles. Um, I think that's where. And they think promiscuous. They think, you know, whatever promiscuous to the person who thinks promiscuous. And they go there first 
And then they forget about the rest of the person who's living with HIV. And I think my neighbor, who's great, I love her. She takes care of my cats. I take care of her dog. She's in my house. She doesn't know I'm HIV positive. I'm not saying to her this morning, even myself, I'm not saying, hey, I'm going to be an NPR. Isn't that cool? I'm not. Um, if I was talking about cats and, and rescuing cats, I probably would have told her. But I'm not. I'm talking about AIDS. So even myself, who's, as Sean knows, I'm very open about being HIV positive. Um, even then, I'm just scared because I'm scared people are going to um, uh, turn away from me and uh, and think I'm dirty and nasty. Um, and I think Sean probably has something to say about that. But while I'm thinking of it, Dr. Bruce, I mean, the first thing that she said is, I have an infectious disease. I would imagine as an epidemiologist uh, with no uh, intention to, to, for anybody to take HIV, AIDS any less seriously, but uh, of the number of people that I might run into over the course of a busy day in a big city who have infectious diseases, uh, uh, com- casual contact with somebody who's HIV positive, I would assume from an ep- epidemiological, epidemiological standpoint, that will be one of the most low-risk things that will happen to me all day if I ride the subways in New York or just walk around in a big city. Oh, absolutely. If I was in there in the studio right now, I'd give Karina a big hug. <laughs> I hug Karina all the time because we need to destigmatize this because Karina's exactly right. What happens is if somebody says, I'm HIV positive, the next follow-up question typically is, well, what did you do wrong or what did you do that's a bad behavior? It's, it's always a negative stigmatization. You must have done something wrong. Only people who do things wrong get HIV. And we want to turn that on its head. So, you know, if, that's why we've moved to opt-out testing. We want to test everyone. Because if I go into a room and I say, raise your hand if you want an HIV test, no one raises their hand. Because they'll say, as soon as I raise my hand, someone will think I'm doing something. And maybe I'm not ready to be honest about what I'm doing. But when we turn it around and say, okay, we're going to test everyone in the room, raise your hand if you don't want to be tested. Well, now the guy who raises his hand, everyone will say, well, he probably did something and he's scared. It's a a different way to frame testing, and it's a different way to frame HIV. And we need to move away from this idea that people with HIV did something wrong. Karina never did anything wrong. She's a wonderful human being. And it's a tragedy, and it upsets me greatly that in 2014, she would still feel the pain and stigma of a very treatable disease um, in the modern day. So, Sean, Karina, I love you. I think you're great. I wish I could give you a hug. <laughs> you're a special person. Um, yeah, and just, you know, I mean, people should understand. I mean, a person with a bad case of the flu can really put you in quite a bit of danger. A person with HIV, yep. I mean, you know, the safest person to stand next to probably. Um, but, Sean, this stigma, it's not just it's not just heartbreaking for somebody like uh, Karina and people who care about her. There are real public health consequences for this, right? If people, if there's a stigma to the disease, then people don't want to believe they've got it, don't want to self-identify as having it, don't get it treated, maybe spread it spread it to other people also because they just don't want to deal with, in a way that maybe they feel a lot more comfortable dealing about some of the other diseases uh, that Karina mentioned. They don't want to deal with it. And so it actually becomes, the stigma becomes dangerous. Absolutely. I mean, Doug alluded to, um, you know, people finding out that they're HIV positive and actually within a year get an AIDS diagnosis because they're what we call late testers because testing isn't routinized uh, to help you know, eliminate some of that stigma. So there's people out there that, you know, the feds estimate about 20% of people who are infected with HIV are completely unaware of their status. So they are unknowingly infecting other people. And again, this is why we push everybody get tested on an annual basis. And if you engage in 
you know, higher risk behaviors. If you're sharing syringes with somebody else or you're having unprotected sex, get tested more often um, to be safe. It's a better way to protect yourself. And again, as you said, in terms of looking at um, public health perspective, uh, it's a way to protect the public's uh, own safety in that as well, because people will become infected and they're not they don't know that they're becoming infected. So it's this sort of, you know, snowball down a very dangerous hill. Um, we're talking about HIV AIDS. If you're just tuning in, the number is 860-275-7266. Let me just grab a call or two. We do have a, call, a few calls sitting on the board here. Let's just see what we've got. Here's Michael in Ashford. Hi, Michael. Hey there. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I I was a kid. I, I guess uh, most people were either kids or just not born uh, back uh, in 1980, but uh, my dad was a doc at Yale, and um, he was—he got involved with just trying to figure it out. Um, a whole bunch of you know, big team, uh, because one of the the students, one of the med students, had Carposi's sarcoma, and it was just such a rare illness that it really mobilized. Um, the folks in New Haven, as far as as far as I remember. Well, I think the point that you're making, if I understand you correctly, is sort of one that that uh, Dr. Bruce made earlier, which is initially, uh, and you can say a little bit more about this if you want, Doctor. Um, initially, the question is, what is this? What what are we dealing with? Um, and and there was just going to be a learning curve about this, right? Absolutely. Early on, all of these rare diseases that people had heard about in textbooks but that had seen in patients started popping up. And that's when people started saying, okay, th- this is happening too frequently to make sense with the history of this disease. There's something else going on. And then that's when people started to put together that there's a virus out there. We don't know what it is. It's now we know it's a retrovirus. It impacts the immune system. And by impacting the immune system, makes it easier for people with that virus to get sick with other things. And Kaposi's sarcoma was actually caused by another virus, uh, HHV-8. And so people with HIV who are immunocompromised who get this other virus wind up with KS. So we know that now, but back then we had no idea what was going on. You know, Karina, um, once again, there's just no way to tell your story in the tiny amount of time that we have here. But but I don't know, here in 2014, um, how, how different are you or do you feel from anybody who has any kind of chronic condition. I mean, if, if somebody has, I don't know, severe hypertension, I mean, there's all, there diabetes, it was one, one that you mentioned. Uh, and there's still some real differences between being HIV positive and those things. For example, uh, you've got a pill counter here with a lot of expensive-looking medicines. Um, I feel very different, um, and I experienced this about a month ago. I We were talking about... Um, uh, the Department of Public Health is able to contact someone who just got diagnosed HIV positive to offer them services. Um, and uh, it's called partner notification or partner services. And for the first time, I realized that the disease I have is a public health issue. And and I know that sounds crazy. I've been living this forever. But emotionally, I realized that the disease I have is considered a public health threat to some extent, even though as Doug has said, and Sean, and you have said, I mean, you're not going to get HIV after spending an hour with me in the studio. I mean, you really have to actively do something with me. And even then, there's a very low chance to get anything. Um, But 
Yeah, I'm, 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 I just can't believe I'm still scared. And it sucks that um, I have a disease that just people really um, just don't like it. And they just don't, um, they're not very kind about it. And they're afraid of me. Um, it is amazing, like 30 years into the epidemic and people still are like afraid of people with HIV. Um, and they are. I don't care what anybody says. But, you know, when I do a lot of uh, uh, talks to uh, professionals, they're all like, well, as a professional, we'll take care of you. We care about you. And then I ask to them, I say to them, well, what if your son or your sister or your brother brought me home? And now um, that person's girlfriend, uh, that person who's going to have intimate issues with them. And, you know, and people are sometimes are very candid and say, you know, I would prefer that my son or whatever brother would choose someone who wasn't HIV positive. It happened to me, my my husband's sister, who it's lovely and we get along great now. But she said to my husband at the very beginning that she would have preferred he found somebody who wasn't HIV positive because she was afraid he would become infected. I mean, it happened to me, you know. Yeah. Well, actually, let's complete that circle a little bit. So let's imagine uh, my son brought you home. Uh, and personally, I would prefer that he see someone who's not married and who's uh, more of his age. <laughs> but, uh, uh, other other than that. But let's say that I said that to you. I said, uh, what if I said, you know, Karina, you seem like a great person. Uh, and you and my son seem pretty happy. But, she's, you know, I just – I. I do worry. I worry. You're HIV positive. I worry what's going to happen to my son. What would you say back to me? How to be you? quite honest, after many years of therapy, <laughs> um, I would say that um, I wouldn't be angry at you anymore. Um, I would. It, it's a natural response. But, tell, I, but tell me what I need to hear. Uh, tell me what you could tell me to make me be at more peace with, with that. Well, first of all, that I promised you that I wouldn't, I'm not going to have unprotected sex with your son, that I will always bear, wear a barrier with your son. Uh, that's what I do in my own life. Uh, that's what I do with my own husband. I have two stepchildren, and I don't think I could ever look at and look at them in the eye and uh, know that I uh, infected their father. So I would that I would do everything that is possible, and it does work, to uh, protect the other person. Doctor Ruiz, is she right? I mean, should should that conversation? put my mind at ease if we're having that conversation is, is uh, it, it, assuming that that's all absolutely the case and, and nobody makes uh, any mistakes or, or, or anything like that. Is that, is that good enough? Oh yeah. Actually I would say Karina is going above and beyond. I mean, there's a lot of data now that if you're taking your medicines and you're undetectable, then the rates of transmission are low. Now we always want people to wear barrier protection and part of that's because not just HIV is transmitted sexually, but syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. We could spend a lot of time on all of the things that can be transmitted. And HIV therapy only addresses HIV. So we always want people to wear barrier protection. But there's data out of places like the Swiss cohort and other places where even men engaging in sex with one another without protection HIV transmission rates are very low when everyone's on their medicine, which is why we want everyone tested. People who are positive, we want them to be on medicine because if we can get everybody who's positive on medicine, we can stop an epidemic. All and right. that becomes very important. But as I think, you know, Sean and Karina, and you've alluded to, one of the hardest things that we're dealing with right now in New Haven is that a diagnosis of HIV calls into question the stigma. What have you done to get HIV. And so for a lot of the young black uh, men who are having sex with men, suddenly being HIV positive is less of a daunting thing for them to grapple with than 
you know, my mother doesn't know what I do or my friends don't know what I do and I can't come out in my community and tell people about what I do. And because I feel I'm afraid of being rejected, partly because I'm positive, but partly because of my lifestyle choices, people feel like they have to hide. And when you feel like you have to hide, you don't come to care. And so I think one big take-home message here is that in important public health interventions, we have to destigmatize behaviors that people are not good or bad based on the people that they love and the things that they do. But as long as we make it, people feel that way, they'll hide what they do. And when they hide what they do, we can't get HIV treatment to them. We can't help them. We're going to take a quick break here. I've totally screwed up the clock. We're not going to have enough time when we come back. But um, I do want to talk a little bit about who gets HIV these days and whether it's the same group of people. I think Sean's going to help me out here. Uh, We'll be back. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns today are Jackie Lauper, Anna Novak, and Catherine Pikus. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. For news, photos, and more information about this show, visit our amazing website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose gets ready for the NBC live production of Peter Pan. Is Sarah Palin really the right choice, and for which role? And now... Back to Colin. All right. Uh, I have totally mismanaged the clock here, and we are running out of time very fast. We were talking about HIV AIDS. A couple of things I just do want to very particularly say, though. Um, Think about going on Sunday, March 2nd, to the Oscar party that we have here uh, as part of AIDS Connecticut. Uh, There's a great red carpet experience. Uh, This is a fundraiser for AIDS Connecticut. You dress up. You watch the ceremony at Spotlight Theaters in Hartford, the brand-new Front Street location. Uh, It's really kind of a a really nice place. It's going to be a great place for us to show you the Oscars on the big screen, too. Put the telecast up there. Uh, for information and to get tickets, visit ctaidscoalition.org. Also, as you're getting ready for that, do go see Dallas Buyers Club. It's not a perfect movie, but it's a really good movie, and it actually uh, unpacks or at least opens up some of these questions. Then get on Netflix and watch uh, How to Survive a Plague, which is also an amazing movie documentary that we talked about earlier today. So, um, and, and the other thing I want to say is, uh, and well, Sean and I were just talking about a way to do it, but we shouldn't mention it until we actually make it work. But I'd like to maybe just do a little bit more of a push and anything that I can do to sort of push things along for, for more AIDS testing. It's a so much simpler thing to do these days. I guess it's a sort of a cheek swab kind of thing. Um, so first of all, I just, I'm going to try to publicly get tested as soon as possible. And, uh, and we may find a way to do that so we can get a lot of people tested all at once, which I think would be a great thing to do. But that is still to come. Sean, we are going to run out of time fast. So like in three minutes, unfortunately, tell us how, in terms of the the, pop, the HIV population, how things are changing. In other words, it's not that nobody gets HIV anymore. People still do. But my sense is it's a different population, or at least the, the percentages are different. Well, it is shifting. Um, you know, in Connecticut, we've had syringe exchange since the early 90s, and we've seen a 30% reduction in new infection rates among injecting drug users over the past decade, which is really remarkable. Um, but sadly, we're seeing uh, new infections among young gay and bisexual men, particularly black and Latino kids, as Doug just talked about. You know, we hear this from our uh, colleagues at the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Um, you know, there's not comprehensive sexuality education. Uh, and even if the kids are getting decent sex education in school, it's very heteronormative. There's nothing that targets gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender kids on how to negotiate relationships, how to negotiate sex, 
um, how to have safer sex. Um, because, you know, as we talked about, we want to remove the stigma around behaviors, and I'm using finger quotes uh, purposefully. You know, as AIDS activists, if people want to have sex with a lot of folks, as long as they're doing it healthy, responsibly, and safely, that's fine. Because um, we want people to do that, but we also want people to continue to get tested. That's the really the big, big push. I think there's also a, a group of people who are going to be hard to get tested. One of those groups is the homeless. I assume for the homeless, testing and therapy are going to be huge challenges with this as well as any other serious uh, disease. They are challenges. And people who are homeless experience HIV uh, in higher rates than the general population. You know, We try to work closely with the Coalition to End Homelessness to make shelters more HIV-friendly, um, and there are definitely are shelters that uh, do offer testing on a regular basis, which is great, but we need to see that become more widespread. You know, um, Dr. Bruce, too, I, I assume another f- challenge that Sean and, and you and, and everybody and, and Karina are going to face is almost a gerontology uh, of HIV AIDS, right? What's going to happen now is the group of people who got on protease inhibitors and other kinds of effective therapies in the mid-1990s, a lot of them are baby boomers, and there's just going to be a big bulge of people who are older with a disease that really hasn't been seen and observed in full in an older population. So uh, in 60 seconds, what, what does that all translate to? Well, it's, it's a big deal. 42% of people living with HIV in Connecticut are over the age of 50. So you're right. It's a big problem. And so all of the other things that happen with aging, um, high blood pressure, diabetes, changes in vision, kidney function, liver function, things that decline over age um, are probably going to be a bigger deal in this population. And so we're really going to have to think about uh, geriatric medicine in HIV is even a subspecialty of geriatric medicine, and it's a big deal in Connecticut. A lot of people with HIV are over 50, and if we don't think about it now, it's going to be a problem later. All right, so we're going to have to stop there. I just want to thank everybody, though, uh, including, uh, obviously, Karina Danvers. Thank you for sharing your story and for your work as director of the Connecticut AIDS Educational Training Center, the Yale School of Medicine uh, AIDS Program. Thanks to Sean Lang, uh, Public Policy Director uh, at AIDS Connecticut, and to Dr. Robert Bruce, Assistant uh, excuse me, assistant Professor of Medicine uh, and of Epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine, also Interim Chief of Medicine at the Cornell Scott Hill Health Center. I hope I got all that right. Uh, if I didn't, we'll fix it on the web. That's what we always do. Check WNPR.org later for more stuff about this show uh, and get ready for the nose tomorrow. <laughs>